Are you Wes Holman by any chance? You were banned, weren't you? He's the outsider. Make a little comeback, Wes. The rebel. You want me to be your coach? You do what I say. The champion. I'm gonna win the race next year. Now he's got one race to prove he's the best. We all have to do it in our own way. On the edge. I'm gonna take your bloated carcass and teach you how to be a mountain racer. Wes Holman was destined for the Olympics. Who was it that used to say to me, stick with it and work hard for the goal? Where the hell are they gonna get you in the end, huh? But he never made it. What do you got against me? He told the truth. The system works for the man who keeps his mouth shut. And he paid the price. You turned me in, didn't you? You had to be stopped. Anytime a damn bureaucrat says it's illegal to do something, then it's what he's doing. He waited 20 years to set the record straight. You gotta be an artist to take on this mountain. Now he isn't waiting anymore. We made our position clear right from the beginning, and this person has no business being in this race. Guy, he's got some kind of Western frontier martial mentality. He and his posse is going to try and get this guy out of the race. Hey, wait a minute. Who is? Wait a minute. I don't know where this guy is. We hear the other runners are helping him. He's one man against the odds. Don't give up. One man against the mountain. I'd like to see the guy finish. One man on the edge. Bruce Dern. On the edge. All right, so we are uh, doing the Track and Field and Running Movie Podcast. Uh, this had been something that Sidious Mag had done uh, years ago, and it kind of fell off, and I'm restarting it again. I'm Jesse Squire, uh, otherwise known as the Track and Field Superfan, and my uh, my partner in this is my brother, Walter. Say hello, Walter. Hello, Walter. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so, uh, Walter, tell us, uh, what's your day job? My day job is I'm a professor at Marshall University, where I teach film studies. All right. So uh, very, very good to have you for your uh, your professional knowledge. Also, um, you run a little bit, don't you? I run a little bit. I got uh, six and a half miles in this morning, um, and I signed up for what will be my seventh marathon uh, in Pittsburgh at the beginning of May. All right. So uh, I've been doing uh, running since about 1983, uh, but uh, you actually had a different way of coming around to it. You ran one year in junior high and then uh, got away from it. Never. Uh, when did you come back to running? Uh, 2016. <laughs> It was sort of my version of the midlife crisis. I started when I was almost 50. All right. Well, actually, that fits very well for today's movie. We're looking at On the Edge, which was released in 1985, and it stars Bruce Dern uh, as a character named Wes Holman. Uh, let me give a real quick uh, synopsis of what happens. Wes Holman was one of America's top middle distance runners in the early 1960s. Uh, but then got banned. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about how that all happened uh, in the character. Uh, but he was banned for uh, taking payments when track and field was a specifically um, amateur sport. And he'd been out in the wilderness coaching small colleges and so forth for about 20 years. And then comes back home 
and decides he's going to do a race called the CLOC race based on the actual real race called Dipsy. Um, and he's going to train to win this. And that's, that's the basic outline of the whole story. Um, so we'll get a little bit more in depth with that. But uh, when I tried to sell you on this and said, hey, the first movie I want to do, it stars Bruce Stern. You said, I'm up for that. Tell us uh, what, for those of us who aren't real familiar with Bruce Stern, who might not even be familiar with his daughter, Laura Dern, um, what kind of characters does he usually play? Why is he interesting? Bruce Dern um, has long been um, primarily a character actor, although he's had his leading roles, not only in this film, uh, but most famously for Nebraska. Uh, but he often plays sort of cranky, curmudgeon tough, determined kind of characters. When uh, the uh, director and co-writer Rob Nilsson was trying to get this movie made, he knew that the guy that he uh, needed as his runner was Bruce Dern because Dern would actually talk about being a runner. He was a lifelong runner. He kept up with it uh, throughout his entire career, his whole life until his body just quit on him. Um, and uh, when he'd talk about it on talk shows, he'd get this kind of crazy look in his eye. And apparently, according to you, that's common in the roles that he plays. Um <laughs> Yeah, there is a glint in Bruce Stern's eyes in acting that that <laughs> is no like like no other. You see that glint in that eye, and and you know there's something going on there, potentially something dis disturbing or someone who's going to take something way too far. <laughs> so um, to expand a little bit on the story here, so. Uh, Holman, when he decides that he's going to do this race, he spends a whole year training for the CLOC race. Um, it's an interesting race. It's something that an old man can win. Um, and his character probably was supposed to be 40s, maybe 50. Um, it's because it's a handicap race. Um, both the fictional race and the real race it's based on, which means that um, based on your age group and your gender, uh, you may get an early start. It's the open men that are the last to start. And whoever comes to the finish line first, that's the winner. Um, so an old man can win it outright. It's rare. Um, the other thing is that it's a trail race, and the character of Wes Holman had been a middle-distance track runner, so he actually did need some help. There's the usual sports trope of he's got a curmudgeonly old coach, uh, this guy was named Elmo, played by John Marley. Um, but because he was unfamiliar with this, he did need some help. And the other thing that's interesting about Dipsy and the fictional CLOC race is that it has a start line and a finish line, but how you get from one to the other is totally up to you. There's no uh, prescribed course. There's a course that most people follow because it's the easiest, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the shortest. Um, so, uh, one thing I, I wrote down in my notes was that, uh, Holman's grizzled old coach, aren't they all grizzled old coach is, uh, Elmo. And why does a running coach, why does this running coach always have a cigar in his mouth? Um, so, um, that trope as the, the grizzled old coach in any kind of sports movie. Yeah, I mean, the classic there is Burgess Meredith in Rocky. 
Um, but yeah, there's in, in most sports movies, there's going to be some sort of mentor figure who comes back again in uh, Creed Two, uh, where you have Rocky, you know, being the mentor there. Yeah, there's it, and often sort of a battle of wills. It's not um, necessarily that that the student is so you know um, that the protagonist necessarily agrees um, with the grizzled old coach but it's often a battle of wills between them and the grizzled old coach kind of beats down, bears down um, in, until the student submits um, to the, the grizzled old coach's wisdom. That, you know, to take a sidetrack, that's actually mainly the, uh, the, the source of conflict in both Without Limits and Prefontaine, between Steve Prefontaine and Bill Bowerman, is that it is a battle of wills. And on some level, um, Prefontaine actually wins that, um, at least in how it's performed. But um, Marley is a is an actor that um, it was his, the final role that he ever played. Uh, he was best known as Jack Waltz in The Godfather. That's the guy that uh, crosses the mob and ends up with his horse's head cut off and put in bed with him. Um, yeah. What a scene. <laughs> what a scene. And what a Christmas movie, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it is a Christmas movie. Okay. Um, another interesting character where it's more interesting, it's almost as interesting the guy who played him as the character himself. Uh, a guy named Flash Holman is Wes's father. Um, Wes's father doesn't see a whole lot of point in Wes running um, because in his younger days, now Flash is kind of old and beat down and kind of the system got to him, but he was a radical, he was a leftist, he was a union organizer on the West Coast, a real rabble-rouser. And uh, this was the first dramatic role that Bill Bailey ever played on film. He got into acting late in life. Before that, he was a radical and a leftist and a unionized or organizer on the West Coast. So he was barely acting, essentially, when he did that. Um, so... I sent that to you. Did you get a chance to take a look at that? Well, yeah, I, I did get a, a chance to look at that. I mean, he had appeared in a couple of documentaries just a couple of years before this movie, uh, but this is his first "quote unquote" acting you know, role where he's playing a character rather than just being himself. Um, this, I mean, it seems pretty unusual. Why would you have non-professional actors? Except there's one genre of film. I mean, sometimes you'll see non-professional actors uh, in bit parts. Uh, there's a great scene in Goodfellas where uh, Martin Scorsese's mother uh, plays uh, the mother of Joe Pesci's character. And she's brilliant, but she's only on screen for a few minutes. Uh, but there's a whole genre of films called social problem films where it's not unusual to cast non-actors because what you're really striving for is... This is someone who knows this existence. This is someone who knows what this is like. And in essence, they don't really have to act. There's gonna be a great honesty. Uh, a couple of films uh, where you have a lot of uh, non-professional actors in sort of key social problem films are Bicycle Thieves, a 1948 film from Italy showing what post-World War II conditions were like in Italy and the entire cast was non-professional actors. And then there's a 1950s uh, American movie called The Salt of the Earth, which is free on, on YouTube, uh, which is for, uh, looking at a mining strike uh, in, the, uh, in the Southwest 
um, where um, uh, Mexican-American workers uh, are striking and you see conflicts between Mexican-American workers and Anglo workers, and also gender conflicts between uh, the male uh, strikers and uh, their wives who eventually take over the strike. And almost everyone or, or many um, actors in that film were non-professional, including actual strike participants and strike leaders uh, of the strike that it's based upon. Okay. Um, and another reason I wanted to pick this movie was this was a real runner movie. It One of the things that's so hard to get right in sports films is the action. And they got the action pretty well right here because everybody that was running was a real runner. Um, Bruce Dern was probably the worst runner out of all the people who played runners in the film. And he was a really good middle distance runner at Penn. Uh, he got kicked off the team in 1957 because he wouldn't shave off his sideburns, um, <laughs> which seems about right for Bruce Dern. Um, but he was fast enough that he even ran on the four by 100 for Penn. Um, and then, you know, got into long distance stuff later on in life. Um, Marty LaCorey plays one of the TV announcers, which he really was a TV announcer <laughs> by that point, I think. Gary Bjorklund, who was uh, one of the America's top 10K runners in the 70s, he plays one of the, the competitors in the, in the race. The production notes uh, say that 10 winners of the Dipsy race appeared in the picture. Um, so there was a lot of that. One of the other things I thought was interesting was how they filmed it. Um, and you can talk about some of the technical stuff. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting was some of the trail running scenes where there is a camera that is, I mean, this was filmed about 1983. Cameras would have been big and heavy back then, but it was clearly being carried somehow over rough ground. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, running. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, what's being used there is some version of a handheld camera, um, and those developed uh, in nineteen in the nineteen fifties. Um, French documentary filmmakers developed the handheld camera um, so that they could get into tight spaces quickly uh, and didn't have to do an elaborate setup with these big, heavy, bulky um, 35 millimeter cameras, and then all the lighting setup you need to uh, to go along with that. And uh, pretty quickly after they developed um, the um, handheld camera, you start to see it being used um, in fictional filmmaking, most famously Breathless, uh, 1960 film by Jean-Luc Godard, which ex uses exclusively handheld camera. There's a what looks like a tracking shot, but it's actually Jean-Luc Godard holding the handheld camera while being pushed in a wheelchair. Um, most famously where you see it, You'll see it a lot in horror films and chase scenes in horror films where it, it looks like, you know, the, the screen is shaking um, or the frame is shaking. Um, and, oh, particularly Blair Witch Project, uh, where the actors in the film did all of the filming using camcorders. And so the movement of their bodies were constantly jostling the cameras. Um, what astounded me is actually how smooth some of the handheld camera work was. And it looks to me like it's almost like some sort of self-fashioned um, steady cam 
which developed in the by the early 1980s. Steadicam is used a lot in Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, um, but it's still a, a big contraption with all of these levels. That would be a really difficult thing to run in. So it looked like some sort of uh, you might have had a runner behind another runner in in some of the uh, the scenes going through the woods during the race. Uh, which probably had a camera of some sort strapped to them as they were running, uh, a small camera, like a handheld camera, uh, but maybe even some sort of self-divine, uh, you know, um, levels used so it wouldn't be too jittery um, as the camera operator was running. Yeah. Um, and it was used in a scene that where, you know, looking at it more from the runner perspective uh, and being a guy who's, the age of Bruce Jenner's character or, or close to it. Um, you know, he's doing some, a training run on the course in some pretty rough trail and he catches a toe on something and just completely wipes out. And he spends a while on the ground before he gets back up. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, you, if you're 20, you'd say, wow, okay, that hurt. Okay, I'm going again. You're 50. Yeah, uh, you're thinking, what did I just do? What did I just tear? You know, um, I thought there was another scene where maybe I was reading my look into it or not, but uh, it's in the San Francisco area, so everything's hilly. Um, and early on in the film, he's running up a hill and two guys who are like 20 are just, jogging and talking to each other and passing him going up the hill and he just kind of quits and walks and looks at these guys thinking you know when i was 20 i would have been kicking your ass and now it's not that way anymore yeah I don't, if this is a point we want to talk about um just sports movies overall and how this fits in um is a sort of redemption factor that you see in a lot of sports movies. Uh, sports movies are always about uh, something other than sports and sports movies are always a genre. In addition to being a sports movies, like you can have sports musicals like Damn Yankees or uh, a sports melodrama like Brian's song. Um, but often a, a common narrative is sports movies is, is a redemption that, um, that the protagonist is redeeming themselves in some way, maybe to prove something to other people, but more frequently than anything, to prove it to themselves. Um, you know, so that here we have, you know, Wes's character, it, it's, you know, I want to win, <laughs> I want to prove you in middle age that I can still do this as much to himself as to anyone else. Uh, as well as sort of almost a revenge factor uh, to get back uh, at at least one person who had uh, caused him to be blacklisted. And there we go. That brings me into the next thing where I'm going to try to, I, I think I'm going to try to uh, set some things straight because it wasn't really ever directly addressed in the film. Um, so why was Wes Holman, uh, why did he get a ban for violating the uh, amateur code. And it was a lifelong bad that comes into the story. So a lot of summaries say, well, he was banned for trying to expose the shamateur thing that it, that everybody was getting paid when it was all under the table. 
Um, but what I think really happened was that he was trying to get all the athletes to work together to try to show how this is that they really should be paid because it was a way for the officials to keep people poor and keep in charge and they really should get paid but the only way they were going to be able to do it was to have everybody work together and so the character of owen riley who uh was one of his competitors and he's the one that was suspected of uh, turning wes in um what the the classic way of doing it was you could take travel expenses so they'd give you plane tickets but maybe a plane ticket you didn't need so you'd go cash it in and that was how you got paid sometimes under the table sometimes they would just flat out give you money and keep it cash and keep it quiet but um so uh so he wants to get back at owen riley who's the race director here and because it's a lifetime ban from amateur sport He's um, he's not allowed to run the race, so he bandits it, and Riley gets wind of this and is trying to pull him off the course. So I think you saw this morning the conclusion to the uh, the race, the conclusion of the um, the film, the race scene. Uh, so how does that fit into bigger ideas? Oh um, well, you know this is sort of fascinating because you know usually sports movies are celebrating an individual. <laughs> you know, it, it's the individual's accomplishment that matters, even if they lose. Like in Rocky, it's still an accomplishment to get that far. Um, and this movie sort of ultimately turns it on it, that on its head because we start thinking, okay, it's all about Wes, you know, middle age, he's going to win this thing, you know, prove something to himself, prove something to his father, you know, et cetera. Um, and then it, it turns in the movie, you get to the end and it's really much more a collective effort. It's no longer about the individual. You see these runners who supposedly are competing once against one another, helping one another out. You have a group of runners running with Wes that when the race director is sending people in to try to stop him, uh, stop Wes, you know, the other runners knock you know, the, the, the race officials out of the way so that uh, Wes can keep running. And then at the end of the film, you see Wes who's, who has taken the lead and will win, just slow down so he can hold hands with other leading runners and so they can cross the line together. Um, and, and there's some other things that's done in the film that you know, seems weird for a sports movie that play into this. There are a lot of extreme long shots in the movie where Wes is running and training runs and looks really tiny. And you see it occasionally as well during the race where you'll see figures that are the runners appearing really tiny and you can look, oh, that's the nature of the race. This is really, really difficult terrain. It's not a flat race, you know, it's not on pavement or on a track. And so that's showing, you know, how difficult this environment is to run in Sure, you can look at this what, that way, but it, it's still a little odd because usually in sports movies, you want to see the protagonist and, and the other competitors in close-ups, you know, so that you can see their exertion, so you could see the emotion on their faces rather than see them as these tiny little dots on the screen. Um, and I think that there may be something going on here, you know, kind of connecting more to the theme of the movie, 
is this sort of notion of, well, those extreme line shots are showing the difficulty for individuals to achieve anything. Why did West fail before? He was trying to organize, but others weren't ready yet. And so he failed because he was going up against a system, against an institution by himself. Whereas during this race, he succeeds because they are working together. Um, you know, that's the only way that you can enact social change is through collective action. And you even see this right before the race begins. You see the grizzled old coach talking to the other, you know, leading racers. We don't know what they're talking about, but it's apparently set up from the very beginning that they are going to be Wes's guard from the very beginning of the race, that that's what's going on, you know, with the coach talking to the, the other racers. Um, and, and one more thing I might sort of mention, the, the movie begins with Wes on a ferry uh, with this gigantic American flag next to him. And you could say it's just incidental. Of course, a ferry, the boats would be flying American flags and it just happens to be where he's standing. But it begins the movie. So that, that's really, really, really important. It's not unusual for sports movies to be uh, connected with patriotism, uh, maybe Rocky more so than any other, particularly because it was released during the bicentennial. Um, but there may also be an indication of a different America, something that was changing by the 1980s. On the one hand, in this movie, you see the, you know, the collective action work at the end of the film. Um, but at the same time, it, it's sort of suggesting, hey, there's, there's another America. Uh, sports movies often highlight the individual, but what about everything that's happened in the United States, the great social changes that happened because of collective action, whether it's labor movement or civil rights movements of various sorts, um, that it's almost sort of like, you know, this movie is saying, you know, there's various ways to read patriotism in American um, and often, unfortunately, in movies too frequently, you know, the... Um, collective action of Americans to enact change has been slighted and hasn't been center stage like the, the focus on the individual has been. Ed, I would I would guess that uh, the director and co-writer Rob Nilsson intended it to be like this. Um, his earlier work included an independent film uh, called Northern Lights about the farmer labor movement in Minnesota, which led to really big changes um, in how agriculture is run in the Minnesota area, um, where it then, you know, the, the banks got less control and the farmers got more, uh, and it was very beneficial to the farmers in that way. I mean, the, uh, the Democratic Party in the state of Minnesota is officially known as Democrat Farm Labor Party, um, which tells you a lot about how things were there. Um, here's the ultimate irony. Uh, so Nilsson had the idea to, for this movie in 1975, and it took 10 years for it to get, for him to be able to get everything put together, to get it made. And it was filmed in 1983, didn't even get released until 85. And most places it wasn't available until 1986. So it was a long-term project. During that project, um, the amateur athlete, amateur system fell apart because specifically a bunch of distance runners formed a de facto union um, ran a race, took prize money, and basically dared everybody to uh, to 
to ban all of them. And basically because they all work together, the way that this movie is talking about doing, it actually happened. It was probably going to happen anyway, but it was the way it happened is it's remarkable that that it's essentially the way it was told in this in the movie. Cool. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. I, I don't know more, what more we want to talk about the movie. I, way back, you talked about how true it is to running. <laughs> and one of my favorite things in the entire movie is the row of porta potties before the race begins? <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> every race, you know, it's like everyone's got to use the bathroom. You know, you're going to see where there's porta potties, or if there's you know a building where there's uh, near the race where there's already you know bathrooms, um, and how important that is. I was running a, a 5K this summer that begins and ends at this courthouse, and there was a lot of concern because usually everyone goes to the bathroom in the courthouse and their bathrooms, but the course of house was locked and it was getting close to race time and people were panicking. And you know, finally someone showed up with a key so everyone could go to the bathroom. I'm sure they would delay the race until people could have gone to the bathroom, but, but I, I love that detail in the movie. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was real runners that put it on. I'm um, so that, that wrote it, that uh, directed it, that acted it. So Oh yeah, all the little details that you wouldn't, if you weren't a runner, you would have thought of, but you know, obviously you got to have them, right? They're going to be there. Um, and non-runners wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. So um, yeah, that uh, brings us actually now to uh, the final segment and Walter gets to go first this week. Uh, Walter gets to tell us about uh, one of his favorite bad movies we're talking movies that are so bad they're actually fun uh so what's your choice for this time around all right our bad movie for today comes courtesy of fred olin ray the roger corman of the 1980s through the 2010s according to imdb he has uh 162 directing credits all but two of those since 1980 for an average of about four movies per year in A Burst of Creativity, he released seven movies annually in a three-year span from 2010 to 2012. You don't achieve that rate unless you crank them out fast and cheap. No cinematic masterpieces here. Best known for his schlocky science fiction and horror films like Bad Girls from Mars and Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, Ray is still going strong, although now he specializes in made-for-TV Christmas movies. His worst or best film, depending on your tastes, is 1978's The Brain Leeches, made for a budget under $300, but that film is very difficult to find. Instead, I'm going to talk about a more accessible movie of his, 1990's Alienator. In Alienator, a space criminal slated for execution escapes to Earth and is hunted by a fembot. While the film is a partial remake of 1958's The Astounding She-Master, as if that movie needed a re uh, reboot, Alienator tries to cash in on more recent science fiction franchises. The most obvious is the Terminator, like Arnold. Tegan Clive, who portrays the Alienator, was a bodybuilder before acting. But there are also hints of Star Wars, most notably through an extended laser pistol fight at the beginning of the film, and a lightsaber that inexplic inexplicably appears at the very end of the movie. This movie has it all. 
Once prominent actors who have fallen on hard times like uh, Jan, Jan Michael Vincent, who was a rising star in the late 1970s and early 1980s, cheap set design and cheaper special effects that would not be out of place in the 1930s Flash Gordon serial, a synthesizer soundtrack one might expect in a student film, perplexing costumes, the game warden wears a brand new Panama hat, and the alienator is clad in a metallic silver bikini with what looks like tin cans on her bra and appears she is also wearing a cross necklace. Erratic editing. In one sequence, you see a close-up of the space criminal inside a building, the next shot of the sky outside, and then back to a close-up of the criminal. In that same sequence, we see other characters strewn uh, throughout the room, and then suddenly there's a shot of all of the characters except the criminal group together. And there's also continuity er errors. Uh, at the space prison, a character says she's checked all the circuits when a switch doesn't work, when we've seen all she does is flip the switch. That's not to say nothing is done well in this film. There's some nice low-key lighting and the surprise ending is not obvious, but the greatest pleasure is in experiencing the overacting and haphazard filmmaking. Oh, that sounds so <laughs> wonderfully awful. So almost unbearably putrid. I'm going to have to watch it. Oh, and there's many more after that, 160 more. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Okay. So it, it's not quite the room, but in some ways, maybe it's better or worse <laughs> or better and worse. All right. Well, uh, that's all we got for this time around. Um, I think next month, what we're going to be looking at is uh, based on uh, the fact that it will be the 70th Jubilee of uh, Queen Elizabeth II's ascension to the throne, provided she lives that long, okay? Um, we're going to take a look at uh, the Four Minute Mile, which is a BBC made-for-TV movie that takes place pretty much the same time that Elizabeth first becomes queen. All right. Sounds interesting. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for coming, Walter. Thank you for asking me, Jesse. Okay, and we'll see you next month.